0: I felt I could taste the flecks of cream as I watched the pie fly through the air. This was COP 6, a big climate change conference in the Netherlands. President Bill Clinton's negotiators were trying to finalize the Kyoto Protocol, a vital treaty, before he left office and George W. Bush took over. Some European governments, backed by environmental activists, we were blocking sensible American proposals for flexible mechanisms like carbon trading. A heckler threw a pie at Frank Lloyd, the top US negotiator. The talks collapsed. President Bush took America out of the UN negotiations. The irony is that after the Americans pulled out, Europe's big businesses pushed for those same market-friendly mechanisms, forcing European governments to do a U-turn. 20 years on, world leaders have gathered in Glasgow, Scotland, for COP26. That story is a reminder of how hard climate negotiations can be and that spoilers lurk in surprising places. So, can dealmakers get through the main course before dessert arrives? I'm Vijay Warren Global Energy and Climate Innovation Editor at The Economist, and I'm the host of To a Lesser Degree... In this series, we take a clear-eyed look at the people, the politics, and the technologies needed to avert extreme climate change. Decision-makers from around the world have descended upon Glasgow for COP26 to hash out what needs to happen to slow climate change. How much will they really get done? We'll look at the challenge of coming to a global agreement. We'll also go to Australia to ask why the country has been a climate laggard and to hear from some of the people whose lives are being upended by climate change. And we'll speak to America's climate envoy, John Kerry, about his expectations for the conference.
1: The scientists have said clearly that 2020 to 2030 must produce a 45% or so reduction in order to be able to achieve our goals of keeping 1.5 alive. And that will be determined in large measure by the outcomes of this COP. It's
0: COP Day. The first full day of the Glasgow COP meeting on climate change. Joining me to cut through the noise are Katrine Brahek, the environment editor, and Oliver Morton, the briefings editor. Hello.
2: Hey, hi, Vijay.
3: Hi, Vijay. Nice to see you.
2: What is a COP? A COP? is a conference of the parties, the parties to the UNFCCC, the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change, get together once a year to find out what they're going to do next and to look at what they've done so far. And last year, they didn't do it for the first time since they started doing this in Berlin in 1995. So this is the 26th COP.
0: There are going to be thousands of people coming, not just politicians or diplomats from civil society, from activist groups, from business. Uh, Kat, you've been to half a dozen of these. Can you give us a sense of what it's like there?
3: There's politicians, there's ministers, there's technocrats, there's business people, there's lots of representation from, say, youth groups and NGOs, all of these people descending on one location in order to push forward progress on tackling climate change as much as possible.
0: So Kat, how important is this COP?
3: It's quite important, Vijay. Originally, this COP was meant to happen in 2020. It was delayed by a year as a result of COVID. It would have marked the first five-year period after the Paris Agreement was made in 2015 parties are required to come back to the table every five years to up the ante on their pledges. So basically to say they will do more in order to tackle this problem. So this is the first of those five-year periods. It is therefore what's known as a big cop, as opposed to the smaller annual cops that sort of tick by every year. That said it's not the end of the road. And I would argue that the the build up to this COP is perhaps not in proportion to the real significance. This is not going to generate a new treaty. It is merely reinforcing and building on the steps that already exist in the Paris Agreement.
0: This COP actually has started on the heels of a G20 summit, which happened over the weekend, where the leaders of the major economies were tackling a few different subjects, including climate change, of course. Now, Ali, did anything relevant come out of that?
2: I think we're looking at what I believe is known in the trade as a nothing burger or possibly in Rome an escalotiniente really very, very little to, to report in that the the big economies all committed themselves to making efforts to keep the temperature rise down to 1.5 degrees Celsius and aiming to keep it well below 2 degrees Celsius. But since those are the terms of the Paris Agreement, it's hardly surprising that they recommitted themselves to that. If they hadn't, that would have been big news.
3: And of course, we already know from various assessments, including the UN Emissions Gap report that came out last week, that the promises that are already on the table going into COP26 add up to warming by the end of the century of at least 2.7 degrees. So quite a jump from that well below two, let alone the 1.5 degrees.
2: If you want to look on the positive side, there was an agreement in Rome that countries would stop funding coal-powered plants in other countries. But this was, again, something that China had already said it was going to do and very few other people are doing anyway.
0: Where does that position us for this
2: gathering and what kind of commitments are coming from countries? The thing you have to remember is that the driving dynamic of COP tends to be developed countries and developing countries and certain amounts of quid pro quo between them. And so the developed countries are expected to come with big plans for cutting emissions, and some of them have them. I mean, the European Union, which has by and large a reasonably good record on climate, is committing to go further. The Chinese, who are the largest emitters, have a commitment to net zero by 2060, which some people are reading as under-ambitious. The American commitment is, of course, um, caveated with various question marks because America can't really be seen as a reliable partner in this process when America can't actually, at the federal level, make unified action in this area on the sort of scale that President Biden was envisaging earlier in the year. There was meant to be a massive ratcheting
0: as part of the increase in ambition. So clearly the plan to ratchet up
2: ambition didn't go exactly as planned, Ollie. Is that a failure? Yeah, on the ratcheting, everyone says that it's disappointing. And it is disappointing if you think that the first level of ratcheting should have got you all the way to where you want to go. But I think to some extent, that's to misunderstand. I'm not a mechanically minded person, but I think that's to misunderstand ratcheting. The main event at Glasgow is these pledges, also known as nationally determined contributions or NDCs. Then in between the NDCs, you have what are called the stock takes, where everyone looks around and says, where are we exactly? So it's meant to be a cycle. There's never envisioned in the Paris Agreement that at a COP five years later, everything would be sorted out and there'd be no more COPing. The important thing for many of the people going to the COP is the idea that the new commitments should be in line with the Paris targets, and they're not fully there yet. So...
0: Tell us, of all the things that might happen at COP, what are the top agenda items that you're watching for?
3: There is this phrase, whether or not we can keep 1.5 alive. Um, The NDCs, as we've discussed currently, do not keep 1.5 alive. And there's going to be a a bit of a push, particularly from the poorest nations, for whom 1.5 is a matter of survival, really, to... Try and do something that will keep that 1.5 alive. And one way of doing that is to increase the frequency of the ratchets.
2: Other things will be there's a question about whether or how to set up the international carbon markets, which are gestured at in the Paris Agreement but not yet given any real form. There'll be discussion on loss and damage, which is a question of how to make up for the things that have already happened. Isn't part of what's on the table the discussion about what the rich world
0: owes? The developing world as per previous promises that haven't yet to be fulfilled on aid money and other sorts of compensation to help the transition.
2: Yes, that's a part of the Paris agreement that really does need to be lived up to in practice for these talks to actually get any semblance of a sense of a united world.
0: Right. So what I've heard is that this process is crazy, utterly messy, chaotic, likely to go into the late nights and well beyond the deadlines and probably unlikely to produce the kind of breakthroughs that many people hope for. But at the same time, it's also the best shot we have uh, as humanity to come together and, and advance the ball on climate action. So let's hope for the best for the next couple of weeks.
3: Yes, I've seen the process make grown men cry, and I mean that quite literally.
0: Well, hopefully we won't be making anyone cry here. Thank you both. Now, while many countries have come to COP having done their homework, others have only made their emissions pledges at the very last minute. One of those countries is Australia, which has been notoriously reluctant to deal with climate change. Our correspondent, Eleanor Whitehead, looks at why climate change is such a contentious topic in Australia.
4: This is the beach. This is home. The tide's coming up. All my kids here playing. This is what they do every day. Living on a Coruque Island?
5: Yasem Mosby's a Torres Strait Islander living on Masig, an island off Australia's northern coast.
4: Now you see where this beach is? Where I'm standing, this actually needs to be the inland.
5: Climate change is slowly consuming the low-lying island.
4: Looking at your home getting eaten away in meters, in months is not something where it's natural and normal for us. Crops
5: are withering. Fresh water supplies are turning salty. And hardest for Yasser, the graves of his ancestors are slowly being taken by rising seas.
4: So one of my grandmother was buried here. The first inundation came, the driftwood smashed a skull and a jaw is in here somewhere.
5: So in 2019, he and seven other Torres Strait Islanders lodged a human rights complaint with the United Nations to try and force the Australian government to do more to curb climate change.
4: We don't want to be refugees in our own country. That's why we stood up and said, we'll we'll take this thing further and we'll go to the UN.
5: Meanwhile, they do the best they can to hold back the rising waters.
4: Uh, The majority of what we use is it gets washed up onto the beach, like driftwoods, and we use palm fronds. It slows the process down.
5: But it doesn't halt the damage caused by high greenhouse gas emissions. The impacts of climate change are visible from the top end of Australia right down to Tasmania. Enraging fires, searing droughts and dying coral reefs... But despite that, its laggardly approach to tackling climate change has put it at odds with most other prosperous Western countries. It's the rich world's weak link at COP26. While other countries were preparing for the conference, Australia's Prime Minister Scott Morrison was deliberating whether or not he'd participate. He did eventually agree to attend and set a target to reduce Australia's emissions to net zero less than a week before the start of COP26.
6: And our plan to reach what will be our new official target of reaching net zero emissions by 2050, our plan gets the balance right.
5: He claims Australia can reach carbon neutrality without phasing out fossil fuels or passing a law to enforce the targets. But Australia has done less to reduce its emissions than any other Western nation. Its goal is to reduce emissions by 26 to 28 percent by 2030 compared to 2005 levels. And that's a fraction of what other rich countries are promising.
7: To be with the global mainstream, that number has to increase to around about 50 percent.
5: Kevin Rudd is a former Labour prime
7: minister. You can either walk into a global negotiation And you can choose to be constructive within that framework, or you can choose to be destructive within that framework, freeloading on the rest of the world.
5: But Australia has been tied up in what it calls its climate wars for more than a decade. Three of its prime ministers, including Mr. Rudd, have lost their jobs for trying to cut emissions in that time.
7: Fighting for climate change action in a country like Australia and the United States, which are both hydrocarbon rich, puts you on the, frankly, the front trench at the Somp, It is not for sort the of faint-hearted.
5: And there's a reason for that.
6: This is
7: coal. Don't be afraid.
4: The Don't be scared. Won't the hurt Treasurer hurt knows the rule.
5: That's the sound of Mr Morrison brandishing a lump of coal in Parliament back in 2017 before he was Prime Minister.
6: It's coal that has ensured for over 100 years the deputy that Australia Prime Minister. has enjoyed an energy competitive advantage that has delivered prosperity...
5: Australia uses coal to generate more than half its electricity, making it a bigger emitter of greenhouse gases than the UK, Italy or France, although its population is less than half the size. And once you factor in the vast quantities of coal that it exports, it becomes the world's fifth biggest source of carbon emissions globally.
6: It's our second biggest export earner over $60 billion a year. And it's been like that for decades and decades.
5: Tony Maher is the General President for Mining at an Australian union, the CFMEU.
6: It's not like Europe where you have small domestic industries. It's a really big export industry.
5: Coal only employs about 50,000 Australians directly, but the wealth it generates is important to the country's economy. Mining of all sorts accounts for about 11% of its GDP and resource-rich constituencies hold a big sway over Australian elections.
6: $60 billion is not to be sneezed at. I often say to my environment friends, careful what you wish for because the money really does flow through. So it's a very big economic and political issue. And it's also a social issue. I mean, miners are rightly very proud of their work and are not ashamed about it.
5: So it would be a huge part of the economy for Australia to willingly lose. And because of that, no major Australian party has plans to start closing coal mines. In fact, state and federal governments are funneling subsidies worth more than 10 billion Australian dollars to the coal, gas and oil industries every year.
6: The thing is, the Paris Agreement doesn't require anyone to restrict any exports. So it's not that Australia is seeking a special exemption. Coal is booming in Australia. It's a bit like Russian gas. Everybody wants it.
5: But coal isn't the only energy source in Australia. It could switch to renewable energy. It's got plentiful sunshine and wind. But that won't replace the money it gets from fossil fuels. How quickly Australia transitions away from coal matters for the rest of the world. By dragging its feet, it's joining with other fossil fuel-reliant countries in holding up progress. Here's Kevin Rudd again.
7: The problem for Australia by being obstructionist, given that progress at all international conferences of this nature is by consensus, is that the Australians, in partnership with others, can really slow things down.
5: In its feedback to the IPCC's climate report before COP26, Australia challenged the claim that it was necessary to close coal-fired power plants to reach climate goals, despite that being one of the stated aims of the COP.
7: The minimum Prime Minister Morrison could do would be to cease to be oppositionist to consensus developing elsewhere. Of course, Australia at its best should be not the laggard on climate change action, it should be the leader.
5: But hope comes from Australia's states and territories, which are doing more, on average, to cut their emissions by 2030 than the federal government, and from Australians who are increasingly concerned about climate change.
3: You can't keep mining coal just because you've got coal miners. You know the old expression: the Stone Age didn't end because they ran out of stones. You know, we don't have to use up all the coal in the ground just to keep, you know, people in the coal mining jobs. Because Dad had a coal mining job. I mean, that's just not how it works. There's just no logic to that.
5: Robin Friedman is a farmer in southern New South Wales, who's always lived in typically conservative rural areas of Australia. She lost her home to the terrible bushfires of 2019 and 2020.
3: We grabbed the cats, the dogs, patted the poor old cows on the face and drove off. That was it. By the time we came back, everything was gone. And. I don't think that we have a government that represents the way Australians think in the majority. I don't think it represents Australia's best interests. It certainly isn't being acting like a good world citizen at the moment.
5: More than 60% of Australians now think that climate change is a serious and pressing problem compared to 36% in 2012. That's according to polling from the Lowy Institute, a think tank in Sydney. And a majority of Australians living outside big cities like Robin think that's the case as well.
3: I think what it told me was what I feared was coming was actually here. We are not waiting for these things to happen, they're happening now.
0: The balance between energy needs and climate change is a politically difficult topic in many countries. Next, we'll speak to U.S. Special Presidential Envoy John Kerry about the chances for success at the world's biggest climate conference. But first, a reminder that if you're not already an Economist subscriber, you can get the best offer by heading to economist.com slash The latest issue features a special report on how to stabilize the climate with a deep dive on the COP26 agenda and a view of the crucial battle for climate change in Asia. Economist.com slash is the link to subscribe. And you can find that link in the show notes for this episode. While Australia and some other countries have been slow to embrace COP26, United States Special Presidential Envoy John Kerry has been unwavering in his support for the conference. I've been speaking to him.
1: At Glasgow, I believe we have the opportunity to come together with the largest increase in ambition that has ever been produced with respect to the climate crisis. But it will not succeed in having everybody embrace the 1.5 and put forward a program which keeps it. On the other hand, we will have more than 55 or 60% of global GDP committed to keep the 1.5 with programs that will do it. We will have an unprecedented amount of money, particularly coming from private sector. Now, a lot of countries have come up with NDCs, the National Contribution Reductions, that will, in fact, keep 1.5 degrees alive. That's a pretty big step. Some countries have not yet moved that far. And the hope is that in the course of the meeting in Glasgow, we will advance so significantly on the levels of ambition that people are adopting that while there still will be a gap in what we have to do to get the job done completely we will be able to see that we're on our way you've
0: clearly emphasized the need for ambition you'd also alluded a couple of times to some countries perhaps being reluctant to embrace some of the commitments that are needed it has been said that one of those reasons that we might see reluctance is that the rich world has not stepped up and met its commitments to the poor world the developing world related to climate change transition and the energy transition what needs to happen for those previous promises to be maintained or indeed to be accelerated, given the challenge?
1: Well, the developed world needs to do what it said it would do. It has to keep the promise. And the promise is $100 billion a year going forward. President Biden stepped up at the UN in September and doubled what had previously been committed, the $5.7 billion. It's now $11.4 billion. What we're trying to do is accelerate uh, the moment that we have the $100 billion. And I believe other countries are also going to be adding to that. But really, that's not the major measurement here, VJ. We also are supposed to get credit for money that we mobilize. I know that the six largest banks in the United States work together and have mobilized some $4.16 trillion over the next 10 years, minimal to accelerate the transition. There are other efforts out there. Mark Carney has put together a couple of initiatives that are gonna produce major commitments by asset managers around the world. The truth is we have trillions of dollars prepared to be deployed to affect this transition. And what we need now is coordination with less developed countries, with emerging nations, so that they can help to make that capital be deployed because they are creating viable commercial transactions. And so in the course of the next uh, weeks at the COP, you will see a transformation in finance that is going to be extremely promising for what we have to accomplish.
0: And in your quiet moments in the middle of the night, as you think about what's How coming up- How do you know I have what's... any, <laughs> <laughs> Maybe you sleep like a baby. That's, that's very possible. <laughs> no, but if, if, Let me ask- <laughs> Let me ask the question differently. If there were to be a concern that you have that might get in the way of success at COP26, what rises to the level of the main obstacle that you worry about that needs to be overcome?
1: I think it's important for us to make sure that adaptation and loss and damage are properly reflected in outcomes. I think it's important for us to have the 1.5 properly addressed in the ambition levels that come forward and the finance. We are going to have to determine the finance for the next 10 years really, because the scientists have said clearly that 2020 to 2030 must produce a 45% or so reduction in order to be able to achieve our goals of keeping 1.5 alive. And that will be determined in large measure by the uh, outcomes of this COP.
0: As someone who spent a lifetime in international diplomacy, thinking about the complexity of foreign affairs and having dealt with numerous negotiations. Can you give us your insight on why it's so hard to reach global climate agreements?
1: You have 195, 196 countries coming together from disparate parts of the world, different interests, different expectations, different challenges. That's as complicated as an international negotiation gets. And then, of course, the majority of countries in the world have barely contributed to this problem. And yet, a large number of that majority of countries in the world will suffer the most extreme elements of the damage that it has done right now. So there's a sense of uh, grievance, which is legitimate. I mean, if you live in the Marshall Islands or in Bangladesh, where two-thirds of the nation is you know, about a meter away from being inundated at any given day that's immediate existential threat to those people there are a lot of people in the world who don't have a sense of connecting the dots between the way their house is heated or their car is moved to that life threat and so you have to find a way to not abuse that legitimate sense of grievance but harness the energy of it to find a constructive outcome.
0: While it's difficult for so many countries to come together to forge a global agreement, it has been done before, at Paris in 2015. To learn some lessons from that landmark deal, I spoke to people who've studied it closely. First, Jennifer Morgan of Greenpeace.
8: There are major obstacles and challenges to get such an agreement in place. And one is a very simple one, which is called voting rules. So uh, in the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change, Saudi Arabia has blocked since the beginning the ability for a vote to occur by a majority, a simple majority, you know, a three quarters majority, which means that every decision in that UN negotiation has to happen by consensus, You can imagine what it's like trying to get 196 countries to agree to something. So that's an obstacle that's been there for a while and requires, I think, great um, collaboration and listening and willingness to be courageous by leaders to move forward if they don't have that unanimity.
0: It's one of the greatest challenges at this year's COP. David Victor is co-director of the Deep Decarbonization Initiative at the University of California, San Diego. He sees a further flaw in the Paris process. When you look
7: inside Paris, what you see is the machinery of pledging and reviewing basically is impotent. Countries can put whatever they want to in their pledges. And so if the idea behind Paris is that these pledges are going to be the basis of deeper cooperation, as more countries learn about what each other is doing and they learn what what succeeds, what fails, none of the machinery needed to really learn which of these experiments worked, which experiments didn't work so well. Uh, which sectors are doing what, how do you do that? None of that machinery is in Paris. And at the end of the day, we're not gonna solve the problem of climate through a global agreement. It's gonna have to be working in smaller groups, sector by sector. Um, And that can't be done um, inside the Paris machinery. The the machinery is too big, too cumbersome, and too consensus-oriented for that to work.
0: Ollie, we just heard from a few different folks about the COP process and how difficult it is to come to a global agreement. Do you think climate change can be adequately addressed through a global agreement coming out of this very messy COP process? Or do you think another approach would be
2: more effective? I think this is one of the times when I say what I fear is becoming one of my refrains on this show is that it's not a matter of either or, it's a matter of both. And I don't think you're going to get very far without some sort of global process. And COP is the one that the world has. At the same time, there are a lot of other processes, uh, minilateral, multilateral, unilateral, that you can also imagine going forward, and lots of things you can do at the non national level. There'll be lots of mayors, for example, up in Glasgow doing their sort of like city to city stuff. So I think it's a necessary but by no means sufficient condition for progress.
0: Now, John Kerry was pretty optimistic about COP, uh, in particular, talking about the role of the private sector. Do you think that optimism is warranted?
3: I think it's his job right now to be optimistic. And I'd say it's probably quite difficult to judge his real mood behind that. We know that the ratchet mechanism has worked and there is something to be celebrated in the fact that the Paris Agreement, which is a really clever piece of international legalese, works in some sense. But the fact is that, as we say every single time, the world is nowhere near where it needs to be if we are going to aim for these lofty goals of 1.5 to 2 degrees. Personally, right now, I'm actually feeling fairly pessimistic about COP. I think this is one of those summits that has a lot of buildup to it for something which is not going to deliver an agreement, which was never going to deliver an agreement. It's going to deliver various steps along the way towards hopefully reaching a safe climate space for humanity. And so there's going to be a huge amount of disappointment at the end of it because people will come our way thinking, well, hold on, the process doesn't work.
2: I think the thing that struck me very strongly about what John Kerry was saying was the way that he stressed ambition. And though that's important, it's also true that ambition is the thing that can be delivered reasonably straightforwardly. It's the actual action that Mm -hmm. that ambition drives that we need to see. And obviously, that's not something that COP provide, right? But uh, that's the way in which you have to bear in mind the other processes beside the COP, which are the ones that actually deliver at the national and subnational and international levels.
0: So what's the toughest nut to crack? You know, what's the hardest aspect of getting to an agreement at this COP?
3: I think it's trust. Right now, the global politics are really difficult. The situation between the U.S. and China creates an imbalance at the top, which is not favorable to a global agreement. And you've got an American administration, which can't be really relied upon in the long term, to fall in line with the Paris process. Right now, we have an administration that does, but there's nothing to say that in a few years we'll be back into a sort of Trumpist America. And if you've got developing countries, if you've got the G77, if you've got India and China thinking that they can't trust the Americans, then the process starts, maybe not to break down, but it starts to grind down. It gets slower and slower. And slow is not what should be on the table right now.
0: Ollie, Katz laid out the geopolitical context to some degree. What about the energy markets context? We're in something of an energy crisis at the moment with power cuts, with shortages of natural gas in Europe, and politicians concerned about the rise in fossil fuel prices.
2: Does that create a problem for COP? Yes, the focus at the moment will be on the sense that energy is scarce and that people are cold and things like that. And that is going to be a dominant part of the discourse, probably more after COP than actually at COP. When
3: Yeah, and next year is all about implementation, right? Next year is all about, right, you made these promises. Now let's start doing the hard work on the ground within our borders to make the promises come true. And that's where the reality of an energy crunch might start to hit hard,
0: To summarize, what I'm hearing is the next two weeks of COP are going to be messy and hard, but important and necessary. It's an essential part of the process of coming to grips with climate change. I look forward to digging into it further with both of you in the next two episodes. Now, the world isn't all bad news. In the final part of each episode, I want one of us to bring in something encouraging, a story we've read or a deeper trend we've observed or a a positive angle we haven't yet thought about that relates to climate change. So, Ollie, you've got some good news for
2: us. Vijay, I definitely have some news which would like you to think that it is good. And that is that Britain's soap operas, and Britain is a nation of soap operas to some extent, are arranging a crossover event in which both the soap operas will talk about each other and they will talk about climate change at the same time. And I think the idea is that the novelty of people in The Rover's Return in Coronation Street talking about things that are happening in Albert Square on Enders is in some ways thought to be endowing the stuff that they say about climate change at the same time with some strange intertextual, metatextual resonance, which will lead to huge public engagement with the whole thing.
3: I've always had a bit of thing about how climate change is represented, particularly in movies, because for a very long time, really all you had in terms of climate change in movies was an inconvenient truth. And let's not go back there. But basically, it was moralising. It was an angry parent telling you how disappointed they were with you. And it was not... Just making climate part of reality and part of the zeitgeist so if these soap operas can manage to make it zeitgeisty I'm interested in it if it becomes kind of twee and moralistic and telling off and I, I think that just turns people against the issue and makes them shut down and get under the duvet and definitely never want to hear about climate change again and possibly never want to watch the soap opera again
0: well I for one think this is really good news and very promising. I can remember in the 1990s when attitudes in Latin America, an area that I covered for us back then for The Economist, were very hostile towards HIV and AIDS in Brazil, for example. And the leading television station took a decision to introduce plot lines on HIV that were supportive of public health efforts. And it transformed the opinion of the entire country. And I think uh, telenovelas, soap operas, are a powerful modern art form, and I think they
2: can have a a big impact. I think that's really well said, Vijay. The only soap opera which I partake in, The Archers, will undoubtedly be talking about the effects of climate change on a small rural community in Borsetshire for many decades to come.
0: (laughs) Great. Well, steamy telenovelas are usually known for raising temperatures among their audiences, but it's good to know that soap operas are joining the fight to turn down global temperatures to a lesser degree. Well, that's it for this week's episode of To a Lesser Degree. Next week, we'll keep our eyes on how COP26 is progressing and we'll delve into the challenge of dealing with climate change in the midst of an energy crisis. Join us next Monday for that and more. And on Thursday, November 11th at 5 p.m. GMT, Kat and Ollie will be at COP26 discussing the latest developments and answering your questions about this critical climate get-together that's all in a one-off live digital event for our subscribers. To take part, sign up now at economist.com slash live. To a Lesser Degree was edited by Marguerite Howell, produced by Rory Galloway, Pete Naughton, and Hannah Mourinho. The executive producer was John Shields, and the sound engineer was Evan Viola. I'm your host, Vijay Vaitheeswaran. I'll be back next week to put the most important and challenging ideas and people in the world of climate change in the hot seat. See
8: you then.